Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Taking you back to the golden era of Formula One. Mavericks. Free spirits. Drivers dicing with danger and even death. Welcome to Formula Once Upon a Time. The biggest events and incidents from the history of Formula One. The behind-the-scenes stories that could not be told until now. Here's Norman Howell and Roberto Bocafogli. Hello and welcome to the second part of our discussion about the great Nicky Lauda. Morris Hamilton joined Roberto and I to talk about his book, simply titled Nicky Lauda, The Biography. And I started by asking Morris if it had been a mammoth task. Uh, the truth is, Norman, this time last year, uh, if you'd said to me, are you going to do a book on Nicky Lauda? I would have said, no, I have no intention of doing a book on Nicky Lauda. It never occurred to me. But when he passed away on the 20th of May last year, I was instantly struck by the breadth of the obituaries and tributes to him, not just from motor racing, but from across the, the board. And it occurred to me that, in fact, he was actually a very well-known sports figure outside motor racing, outside sport even, because of what had happened to him with his accident in 1976, what was light air uh, and the, the, the crash that had killed 223 people, all of that and how he dealt with that. So he was very much in the public domain. And at the same time, my uh, publishing agent, my, my literary agent, David Luxton, got on to me and said, listen, did you know him very well? And I said, yeah, fortunately I did, yes. He said, do you think, is there a book in this? Because I think there hasn't been one in English since 1987. Do you think, could we do something? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. And that led to, I did a quick uh, synopsis and we instantly had three major publishers really wanting to do it, which of course is what you want as a writer. <laughs> so we, we signed up uh, with Simon and & Schuster and they said, we need it ASAP. But it was wonderful. I mean, I, it was an, it was talking about an era I love, talking about a guy I deeply respected, uh, writing about a, a, a man who I've got loads of cuttings for, loads of interviews. So it was a total pleasure. And, and Morris, um, obviously his first period, his first sort of claim to fame, really, I suppose, is when he started driving for Ferrari. Do you have any particular memory of him at Ferrari? Well, obviously, you, you're immediately drawn, well, two things, I suppose. You're immediately drawn to the crash in 76, because I was at the Nürburgring uh, on that fateful weekend. 
and uh, came away like everybody else thinking on Monday morning, I'm probably going to be writing an obituary about this man. And of course, it was anything but that because later he's back at Monza. So that whole story, the comeback, absolutely extraordinary. As sporting comebacks go, not just motorsport, sporting comebacks go, I think that's one of the most extraordinary. And then the second memory regarding Ferrari is his first win after the comeback, which was the South African Grand Prix at Carl Army, 1977. A very emotional moment. And he told me much later that that, that win meant a lot to him because it proved that he was able to come back. And as maybe we'll talk about later, it was actually a very hard fought for when he had to nurse the car across the line. So those two things, I think, uh, remind me a lot about him and Ferrari. Although, you know, I'm sure Roberto's being in Italian and being with the Italian media has got lots of different sort of memories. But for me, the, those are the things that are outstanding uh, from Ferrari's point of view. But from Ferrari, he moved on, obviously moved to Brabham, but his next big moment really was at McLaren, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, again, comebacks in that sense. It's a different sort of comeback to the one at Monza. This is where a guy has retired, gone away, hasn't been racing, isn't match fit, if you like, and decides to come back into a very, very competitive arena. And, of course, being Nicky Lauda, he comes back and he wins his third race. So you have this extraordinary combination of the comeback uh, with McLaren, which is a, a team on the up. They'd had a very bad time in the late 70s, but been reorganized by Ron Dennis. Nicky being Nicky was clever enough to see this. And Ron Dennis being Ron Dennis was clever enough to realize that Nicky could be tempted to try one of these latest Formula One cars to see if he liked it. And the two things married together. And uh, so there you had this comeback with Nicky Lauda with McLaren. And typical Lauda. The very first Grand Prix they had, which was it was 1982 when he made the comeback, and the very first Grand Prix was a South African Grand Prix, and Nicky leads a driver strike. I mean, I mean, what more do you want? You know, <laughs> got a bit of everything because the driver there was a, a, a clause in the contract which Nicky had spotted. Nobody else, Nicky had spotted it, and, and it was basically going to tie the drivers to their teams, like rather like football players. And you could see this was bad news for them, and he urged them to not practice on the first day for the South African Grand Prix in 82. And they, they finally got things done. But that was like a talk about making a comeback and talk about making an immediate impression. Absolutely fantastic. And then, of course, we go on to 1984 when he wins his third title. Absolutely brilliant. By half a point. Yeah. The smallest <laughs> margin there will ever be. So it was that close. But so again, part of the louder folklore. And it was half a point by, you know, from Alan Prost. Lauda, I understand, in, in the early days, if I remember correctly, wasn't that keen on Prost joining him, was he? No, because he was too fast. <laughs> <laughs> and those are Nicky's words. Because uh, prior to that, uh, been John Watson has been his teammate, and, and Nicky knew John Watson extremely well. They'd been together at Brabham, made a lot of time for him. But it, as, as Nicky said, I knew it was a bit quicker than, than Watty, as he calls him. And then this Frenchman, who's 10 years younger and a lot faster, comes in as the McLaren driver, and he's thinking, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do about this? But again, Norman, this is so classic louder. He works out that and accepts that Prost is quicker. So he's not going to beat him in qualifying. He's not going to beat him in lap for lap time. So what's the way to beat him? It's to beat him in the race. It's to beat him looking after the tyres, to think about the strategy. And he applied his experience and his crafty thinking to that. And as we just said, he won the championship by that half a point, but he did it. And he, and he beat Prost. 
And then he said to Prost, next year will be your turn. And of course, that was absolutely true as well. So it was just a classic confrontation and a classic Nicky Lauder, the way he dealt was something that really could have defeated him. We all know that he was a straight shooter. Uh, he didn't mince his words. And he had a um, pretty interesting and turbulent relationship with Inter Ferrari. How was his relationship with Ron Dennis, who was not the easiest of men either to get on with? I think Nicky Lotto is one of the best people to deal with Ron because, as you've just said, Norman, uh, he didn't brook any nonsense, Nicky. And I think Ron accepted that. Uh, Ron knew that uh, if you talk to the mechanics, for example, uh, at McLaren at the time, they will say that Nicky just came in, did the job. They knew that he would extract the most from the car. He would talk things through with the engineers. The downside to him was that uh, I remember uh, Dave Ryan, the chief mechanic, saying that he had to educate Nicky in how to say thank you to the mechanics. In other words, at the end of the day, you'd have to come out, make him come out and say, thanks, guys, I'm going, because normally it would be uh, if you just disappear. So he, Dave said the, the best they got was uh, Nicky come into the garage, look around and say, goodbye, I'm away, thank you, and go. <laughs> so that was it. <laughs> but he got it done, you know, and, and I think Ron realised that that's the way Nicky is, you just deal with it. And uh, at the end, their relationship got a bit tetchy over money, of course, but uh, the job was done by then, so there was, there was never a problem. I love your anecdote about Dave Ryan, who who was a lovely guy and another straight talking Kiwi guy, actually. And in fact, his nickname was uh, Fon Ryan, you may remember. So having having him telling Nicky to uh, to tone it down is quite funny to hear that. And so, Morris, doing a book like this, how much of the man has come through for you? You know, I mean, obviously he. He, he he ran three airlines, for God's sake, which is an extraordinary thing. I mean, for anybody, forget about Formula One driver. Um, how how did that come about? And, and you know, how did he manage his airlines? I mean, he failed. He started them up again. He failed again. He just applied. He just, he just used the same application that he'd used to driving, to running an airline. He'd been passionate about flying. Uh, he, he loved driving racing cars, and the second love was, was flying. So he was... He had a small aircraft to take him to the races when he was racing. And then he kept expanding and he got bigger and bigger. And he suddenly thought about starting a small airline. Uh, he started Lauda Air. And when he retired for the first time in uh, 1979 from the Canadian Grand Prix, the first thing he did was go straight off to McDonnell Douglas in Long Beach, California, and order uh, a DC-10, which was the wide-bodied jet at the time. So he was very serious about getting this airline going. Um, he had his ups and downs, and uh, I talked to him uh, quite a bit about that uh, during some of the interviews I did. And what he found was that he was, he was, Light Air was up against Austrian Airlines. The national carrier was always trying to squash the smaller one, rather like in Britain, where we had British Airways and Richard Branson's Virgin Airways. Uh, there's this confrontation all the time. And Nicky was not deliberately going up against them, but he, he, was, he got annoyed when they were trying to crush him. So he thought, oh, well, if that's the way you're going to be, I'll, I'll just go, I'll just take you on. And so he started to do long-haul flights. He was quite happy to do the feeder flights, the small stuff, uh, but he, he, he then expanded the airline. Uh, the, the, the biggest test for him unquestionably came when one of his aircraft, a 767, uh, crashed 20 minutes after takeoff from Bangkok. And it crashed into the jungle, killing all 223 people on board. And that included, of course, the flight crew who he knew personally and who he probably had chosen. And this 
was a, a dreadful thing to happen to anybody, but particularly when it's your airline, your name's on the side of the aircraft. And we had a long chat about that in 2011. And uh, it was so impressive to hear him describe how he put his mind to dealing with this awful tragedy. And that included going straight to the scene of the accident. It was in the jungle. Naturally, he said, I'd never seen anything like this in my life because uh, the crash had been sped, had come from 28,000 feet and just broken up uh, in descent and just crashed. And he said the wreckage was everywhere. And he said it was uh, unbelievable what he was seeing, apart from the devastation of the aircraft and the people in it. There were people, other people, had, locals had arrived and were, were trying to steal stuff from their bodies. He said it was just unspeakable what he was seeing. And he's watching all of that and trying to work out why. He just kept saying, why is this here? Why is this aircraft like that? The crash was so severe that the black box couldn't be used. Can you imagine that? The heat, there'd been a fire, and the heat had been so severe that the tapes inside the black box couldn't be used. But they found a sensor on one of the engines, and they found the cockpit recorder. And from that, he began to build up a picture of all the little details that he could see um, and they discovered in his mind that the reverse thrust, you know, when you when a, when a jet lands, the reverse thrust comes on, you push forward in your seat, and the engines go in reverse, basically. And one of those had come on in the left-hand engine uh, at 28,000 feet. And Boeing had said that if that happens, you can hold the plane, you can correct it, you, can, you, can, you, you will be all right. And he was convinced that wasn't the case. And he was correct, because of what it did, it just un- inverts the aircraft. They could tell from the, the cockpit voice recorder, they, they were talking quite normally, and then suddenly there's a bang, and then nothing. So he said they knew from that that it was catastrophic, whatever had happened. They hadn't had time to do a mayday or talk to each other, just bang, and the plane is then in rapid descent. So all of this added up, but Boeing would have none of it. Boeing said, no, 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 it can't be that. No, even if that did happen, and we don't think it's likely, you can still save the aircraft. This went on for eight months. And he said to me, he said, can you imagine? He said, 767s are flying around the world, and we think that the reverse thrust is suspect on these aircraft, and this Boeing are still allowing this to happen. And he said, that was terrible. And he said, it was my fault. Everybody was saying it's my fault. And the, the crucial moment came for him when the, a, in Bangkok there was a, um, a mass burial for 23 unidentified victims. Okay, so the last 23. And he went to this mass burial, and he said, all the relatives were around the grave, and they were looking at me, saying to me, why? Why is this happening? Why are our loved ones here? And he said, I don't have an answer, but I think I know what it is. And he said, that determined me. He went straight to Seattle, to the Boeing headquarters, and because he could fly all these aircraft himself, including the 767, he demanded to get into the simulator. And Boeing didn't want to do that. He said, no, 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 you can't do that. And he said, yeah, I won't say, I won't use the exact words he used, but basically he said, it's my plane, my crash, let me in. There was a few swear words thrown into the middle of all of that. And they relented. And he had the simulator set at the exact settings for when they lost contact with the plane. And he engaged reverse thrust in the left-hand engine, couldn't save the aircraft. Ten times he tried to save the aircraft, couldn't. So he came out of the simulator. He said to them, there you are, okay? It wasn't my fault. It wasn't Ladera's fault. It wasn't a maintenance fault. There was something wrong. They actually found out it was a little O-ring in the system had come out, and that's what had caused the, air, the reverse thrust to engage. The point about it, and this sums up, they asked about Ladera, what sums him up? This sums him up. 
Boeing said, okay, all right, yeah, there was a problem with the reverse thrust. And he said, good, right, let's issue a press release and get this done. And they said, no, we can't do that. You know, it's going to take three months. We've got to get the legal department to read it and got to get the wording right. And he said, no, bullshit, no, not having this. So they said, no, we can't do this. So he said, right, he said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. He said, I'm going to go out of here. I'm going to call a press conference tomorrow morning. I'm going to say to everybody, we're going to take a Boeing 767. We're going to go up to 28,000 feet at 580 miles an hour, whatever it was. We're going to engage reverse thrust in the left-hand engine. You will be on board. I will be on board. We'll see. It's all okay because that's what you say. You die. And you walk out. He got back to his hotel and Boeing were waiting saying, okay, we'll sign. No, don't do it. Don't do it. We'll sign. We'll sign the release. And he said, finally, after eight months, they admitted that there was a fault in the engine. So that was just his tenacity, his refusal to let go. And he said, it was hard. I mean, he, he said, I had tears at times because I was getting every day, he was getting 20 or 30 calls, letters from relatives saying, do you know why? What's happened? Why did you, we are playing crash? And I had no answers. So he went through that and still ran the airline during all of that. So talk about strength of character. I mean, that is the most wonderful example you'll get. It's a real David and Goliath story, and and uh, it does sum up Nicky Lauda and that extraordinary well professionalism. Really, he had it obviously as a driver, but he had it as a human being. You know, he 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 wanted to do things right and do them absolutely at the top of his game. Well, there's a funny side as well to him. Um, we talked about Roberto. We, we've talked about his uh, sense of humour uh, in relation in relation to the to the airline. Uh, as I said, uh, Austrian airlines were constantly trying to screw him, basically. And um, there was, he was making an inaugural flight from Vienna to Sydney. And this was a big deal, okay, a big deal for Laudaire. And he had this inaugural flight arranged with all VIPs aboard, everything. The mayor of Sydney would be waiting to meet the plane when it got there. The day before it was due to leave, he had a call from the airline, the Air Authority in Australia, whatever they're called, in Canberra. They said to him, Mr. Audi, you can't come. Why not? because your paperwork is not in order. You cannot fly in Australian airspace. And he said, I knew that everything was in order. I knew they had everything. I knew it was somebody was turning the screw, trying to mess things up. So he said, I said to them, I've got everybody ready. I've got 223 people. We're all ready to go. What are you going to do? And the man in Australia said, I don't care. And Lotus said to him, I don't care either. I'm coming. If you're going to stop me, you're going to have to shoot me down. <laughs> and he went. And they got there. And of course, it was all, it was all uh, a ruse to try and stop him. But he got there and he, he was very, very successful. And by the way, that story I had backed up about the, did you really say that? You could shoot me down? And he said, yeah, I did. I spoke to Otmar Lenz, the CEO of Laudaire. He said, I was in the room with Nicky at the time. And that is exactly what he said to the man in Australia. Formula Once Upon a Time. Morris, can I take you back a little bit, actually, to the the whole sort of relationship that Nicky Lauda had with uh, with another iconic driver of that era, of course, James Hunt, and uh, and the famous Fuji episode. When you researched the book, did you did you come up with anything that that uh, surprised you of that time? You may re- want to remind us actually of what happened. Well, they were neck and neck in the championship. I mean, an absolutely wonderful story, uh, which they made a movie rush out of, and uh, they get to the final race in Fuji in Japan. And uh, either of them could have won it. But uh, Nicky is ahead in the championship. The James has caught him up during the period when, when uh, Nicky was recovering from the accident of the Nürburgring. Uh, James won in certainly in Holland and closed the points gap. And then he won in America and Canada, the, the two races preceding Japan. Two brilliant victories by James Hunt, by the way. And so the, it was nip and tuck. 
So they get to Japan and the conditions are appalling on race day, absolutely shocking. Uh, the, the race should never have been if, if it was like that today, the race would not be run. No question about that. But then there was a lot of dithering and they didn't know what to do and the start got delayed and delayed. And Nicky was dead against racing, as were most of the drivers. They had a little meeting and uh, Bernie Eccleston came in and said, look, he said, we have a contract here. Because this was this fantastic fight between these two, uh, Bernie had arranged a lot of TV deals because television then was not giving the coverage that we get now. So it was a fairly new thing. And Bernie had arranged all these deals to televise this climax to the 1976 World Championship. And here the driver's saying they're not going to race. So Bernie said to them, look, do one thing for me. So we are at least adhering to the contract. Will you at least all go out and do some laps? And if you want to stop, stop. And they all agreed to do that. But in the meantime, James got back to the McLaren pit and Teddy Mayer and Alistair Caldwell, the chief mechanic, got into his ear and said, look, you're daft. He said, you can win this championship. Nicky's ahead of you. But if you win this race or do better, you could become world champion. You don't want to throw that away. And they persuaded him to race, although he didn't want to. And then, of course, as was, as always happens, uh, once drivers, they say one thing, they get into a car, they put the crash helmet on, they close the visor, they start the engine, they feel the vibration, they become racing drivers, and you can't stop them. And that's what happened to most of the field. But Nicky, no. He said he knew, having been through what he'd been through at the Nürburgring and that horrible crash and that unbelievable recovery that he had, uh, having had the last rights granted to him in, in hospital, I mean, he'd come from back from that. He knew the value of his life better than anybody. And he decided, no, it was just too dangerous. It was out of the question. And he was right. It was. It was madness. So he stopped after a couple of laps. And I'm sure Daniel will have told Roberto, uh, you know, how he had to deal with that, which was very difficult for Odetto to deal with that. Um, but Nicky was insistent that he didn't want to go any further. And so James then, it was a very topsy-turvy race. The rain uh, stopped and then it came back and it stopped. He had to change tyres. James had to make a late pit stop came back to finish third, which was just what he needed to do to win the championship, and he won it by one point. So it was uh, you know, a fairy tale worthy of a film. You mentioned Bernie Eccleston, of course, yes. It, it wouldn't happen now, but in those days he, he made things happen. But he was also a master of compromise. So uh, the idea of just doing a few laps and <laughs> making it happen for the television broadcasters is a classic story of that era. Um so we, he obviously had did a, quite a few other things, um, Jaguar, etc. But the big comeback for Nicky Lauder, I suppose, is when he became non-executive chairman at Mercedes, which again, I think Bernie Eccleston had a bit of a hand in that. But uh, what happened there? Why did he? And he, and he, well, he had ten percent of the team, didn't he? So what, what, how did that come about? I, I think Mercedes. He, he had a good relationship with Mercedes and uh, Toto Wolff. They, they knew each other of old, actually. Toto Wolff was, was not at Mercedes at that time, I should hate that. He was with Williams at that time. But uh, they, they, that, I think the attraction for Nicky was, it was he'd been with Ferrari and then he'd been with Jaguar. And the, now the two were that particularly successful. And uh, certainly the Jaguar one ended in tears almost at the end. So the Mercedes thing, I think, was a, a better enterprise to, to be involved with and, uh, because the team had regrouped um, they had bought the, what was left of, of Braun, and with the change in the new formula coming up, he could see that Mercedes were ready for it. And, of course, it was proved to be correct because Mercedes were better prepared for the new change of formula than anybody else. So Nicky be Nicky, he'd asked all the right questions and he could see that. So he could, it was a very attractive uh, position for him to take. 
And so he then uh, was working then ultimately with Toto Wolf. And they went back some way because Nikki was a cousin. If I get this right, Nikki was a cousin to Toto's first wife. So they knew each other of old. They'd been out. They'd, had, they'd, they'd uh, dined together. They'd been spent a lot of time socially together. Fellow Austrians too, aren't they? Indeed. And, and also Toto was a, a driver, particularly in sports cars, touring cars. And uh, he, he, he Toto tells a story about um, going to Nikki and saying he was driving a GT car. I can't remember exactly what it was. Uh, I think it was a Porsche. And he was out to beat Nikki's lap record that, that Nikki had set in the, in the Formula 1 Ferrari in 76 and testing around the Nordschleife of the old circuit that Nikki had the crash. Seven minutes, yeah. That's right. And he was out to try and beat that. And Nikki said, you're mad. You're completely nuts. Why do you want to do that? Because it's an old record. Who cares? And it's a dangerous place. You're mad. And uh, there's a particular point on the Nürburgring called the foxhole, uh, the, the, the Fuchsroar. And, he, and the Toto's going down there and he has a puncture. And that's the last place you want to have a puncture. And wrecks the car, ends up in hospital in a very bad way. It gets on to Nicky and tells him, and I, I'm sorry I can't repeat what Nicky said to him, but he told him what he thought of him for trying that on. But that was the sort of relationship they had. But also, you know, Toto Wolf was a racer, and Nicky liked racers. So you had this very good combination. And then what happened was Nicky's role was actually very, very important there because he was a link between the management, if you like, and the drivers. And when you had two hot shoes, when you had Lewis Hamilton and Nico Rosberg fighting for the championship, Nicky knew what was going on in here. He knew what they were thinking, one competing against the other. He knew how to deal with all the problems that would arise and did arise, as we saw there, a couple of collisions, fighting for the lead in a couple of places. Spain's one, and I think Belgium was another. Um, and so they, Nicky was the man who was able to take them both aside and talk to them man to man. And they would listen because he was a three-time world champion. He knew what he was talking about. And they, they took heed of that. And that allowed the team to work in a very special way and allowed them both to compete as you would want, but also to uh, get the results that the team needed. So it was a very powerful role. And of course, I think you mentioned, Norman, Nicky had a big role in persuading Lewis Hamilton to come from uh, McLaren to Mercedes. The way that worked was that Nicky went to Mercedes and one of the very first board meeting he went to, at that time they had Nico Rosberg and Michael Schumacher on the team. And um, Nicky said, what are you going to do uh, for 2013? And they said, well, we're, we're going to have Michael Schumacher. Well, has he signed? Well, no, but we're waiting to hear. And he said, well, he might not, he might retire. And they said, well, we're not sure. And he was the one that said, you've got to have a backup. You've got to have somebody else. And he was the one that put the initial inquiry out to Lewis Hamilton. And uh, Lewis was initially, well, I'm not sure about this, because Mercedes only won, I think, one Grand Prix at that point. And uh, he needed persuading. And Nicky said to him, listen, he said, uh, you've won a championship. Sure, you can stay at McLaren. I understand that. And you could probably win more with McLaren. But listen, don't you think it's better if you can go from one team to another and win two championships that way, like I did with Ferrari and then with McLaren? Isn't that much better? And Lewis thought about that. And then Nicky persuaded him. He said, look, I know what's going on there. They're going to do a really good job. You really want to come. And that just, when, when Lewis was dithering, if you like, Nicky just gave him that final push. Again, man to man, driver to driver, trust me. And Lewis did trust him and, of course, never regretted it at all. So a great chemistry going on there as well between the drivers, the management, everything. Just that's why it works so well. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. He was a crucial linchpin, didn't he? When you said he loved uh, races, and you said he could talk to races man to man, as you said, and for someone like Hamilton to have someone like Nicky in front of him, you know, with with his burns, you know, with his face, which was always there, that you, you it couldn't be hidden, a reminder of of what this guy had gone through, the courage, and what he'd come back from. I suppose you know a young driver like Hamilton, who was really wedded to McLaren, wasn't he at the time, and he felt. A lot of loyalty to McLaren, you know, jumping ship as it were, but having loud in front of him saying, "Come over, come over." You know, I believe in you. This is, you know, you can win with two teams. That must have been an extraordinary thing for for Lewis, wouldn't it? Yeah, yes, it was. You're exactly right because uh, he actually said to Nicky, "Why should I leave McLaren?" This because they were the team at the time, and that's where he, as you say, the team he'd grown up with, felt completely at home with them, knew how they worked. Uh, nobody likes change. Why should you go to a new team and have to start again, getting to know everybody? And, you know, Lewis was coming up to his peak and he needed to be winning races. And uh, to have Nicky say to him, it's going to be all right, I think had a huge effect because Nicky said to him, yeah, if I was you, I would probably stay as well because I can see the sense in that. But, and then for the reasons that I've outlined, why not think about doing it with another another team? And you're right, Norman, I think uh, to look at Nicky, with the, the, the obvious burn mark still on his face. It was a reminder, too, of uh, for any driver, really, that he was from a different era when fire and accidents were, sadly, much more common than they are now, touch wood, that, you know, it, it doesn't happen so often now, but this was in an era when accidents, I'm afraid, were quite common. And so uh, the drivers of today, when they, when they would talk to Lada, they would realise that his depth, of knowledge, his depth of experience, his depth of understanding was perhaps far broader than anybody else's because of what he'd been through. And and I think that means a lot because you, you, you then have respect because drivers, it's very hard to get top sports people to get respect in, in any other sports person, isn't it? But with Nicky Lada, I think there was never any doubt about that. He'd been there. He'd done it three world championships. He, he really didn't have anything to prove and he didn't care either. I mean, he'd just tell you what he thought. So that helped as well. <laughs> You're right about the the toughness of that era too. I remember I once um, ended up in airport lounge, as one does sometimes, at the same table as uh, as Nicky Lauda and Helmut Marko, and and the two of them 
and can't be repeated here, but some of the comments they were making about some of the, the younger drivers of now were quite um, shocking, really. But actually, they came from such a tough background. Both of them had literally the scars to prove it, had survived that era. And they just felt that some of the drivers of, of this period really were rather mollycoddled. And I remember sitting back thinking, my God, these guys are quite frightening. They really take no prisoners. And I remember that, you know, Nicky really gave that impression. So as you say, he'd, he'd done it. He'd been there and done it. Just a good point to ask Roberto, actually, something. We're talking about uh, Nicky when he came back and he managed Ferrari for a while, Roberto. And uh, I remember uh, I talked for the book, I talked to Jean Lacey and Gerhard Berger about that period. And Norman, as we were saying, they had huge respect for this man, Nicky Lauda. But for some reason, that period when he was kind of a consultant, Roberto, to Ferrari in 92, 93, didn't quite work. What was your take on it in, in Italy? I'd just be curious to know. He came in 1992 uh, because um, Luca di Montezemolo became president of Ferrari in November 1991 and immediately he called him. So Nicky was in the pits in 92 and the team was quite poor because the car was not competitive enough. It was a double floor car made by engineer Mijo and the car was not that car. And uh, the drivers were Alesi and uh, Capelli. And uh, Alesi said, uh, the car is fantastic. I will win everything. And Capelli said, uh, I worry with this car. I'm really, really absolutely worrying because it's dangerous to drive. And I remember Nicky trying to settle those positions and saying, and telling everybody, and telling all of us journalists, especially Italian, it's a carnival. I remember he said, it's a carnival. Then the following year, um, Gerhard Berger came back to Ferrari and he was there with um, Alesi. Things started slowly to get some better, also because Jean Todd came on the 1st of July, 1993. So the team started getting its its real shape. The problem was that Nicky and Todd together were quite too much for the team. But still, Nicky was Nicky. I remember once in Silverstone 93 when uh, Gerberger Berger had a small accident getting out from the pits because he touched it getting out from the pits. And when he stopped, it was clearly his mistake. And uh, we went, everybody to interview Berger who said, oh, I don't know, maybe I had a small failure to the rear brakes, blah, blah, blah. And so it was so absolutely unbelievable. Then we went to Nikki saying, hey, Nikki, Berger said that the crash was maybe because of brake failure. And Nikki answered to us, uh, it's very simple. Berger opened the book of excuses and uh, read the one of page 12. <laughs> so that was Nikki, you know, always Nikki. Roberto, this reminds me actually of when we were chatting also with uh, Audito. Um, he was saying how, in his mind, Nikki was really the first professional. When he got to Ferrari, he, he, just, he was just the first professional driver. This was his profession. This is what he – he wasn't, you know – an amateur or a semi-amateur, as some of the drivers were in those days, really. They just enjoyed driving, but enjoyed doing other things in their spare time. Uh, Nicky wasn't like that, was he? Consider that when Nicky came to Ferrari in 74, the other driver was Claire Regassoni. And if you read Enzo Ferrari's books, Ferrari defined Regassoni, a fantastic playboy, a super dancer, a very charming man, and in his spare time, a good driver. <laughs> so that was the description. 
when Nikki came, I was, I mean, Nikki was staying in the pits with the mechanics until 10 in the evening, getting interested on every kind of mechanical work they were conducting on the car, a lot of interest on the tires, behavior. If they have a meeting with, I don't know, the pistons maker, he wanted to get part of the meeting to understand exactly what was going on. The first kind of telemetry that was growing up those those stages, Nikki tried to learn it by memory every time because he wanted to know exactly what was happening to the car. I mean, yes, I don't know if he was the first professional one, but for sure one of the first professional ones, and for sure he started to change to change the whole perspective in Formula One. Roberto, you reminded me of something there that uh, when we're going back to that period of Nicky returning to Ferrari and management role and Jean Alessi, Ivan Capelli and then Gerhard Berger. When I was talking to Alessi about Nicky before the book and we were recalling that period, uh, Alessi said to me, he said that Nicky had been a big hero for me, big, big hero. And suddenly I find he's at Ferrari. He didn't know he was coming. So he said the Silverstone British Grand Prix was the first time He's in the pit, and I've, I discover he's got this role working with us. He said, I'm so excited and so delighted. And I get out of the car, and, uh, and, and Nicky comes over. And the first thing he said to me is, uh, okay, so everything okay? And, 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 and he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, are you glad to be here? And he said, oh, he said, um, yeah, food is good, car is shit. <laughs> I didn't know what to say. I didn't know whether to agree or what this man was saying this to me, but that is typical uh, Lada. Consider that as the very first testing of Nikki with Ferrari in Fiorano at the end of 73, everybody was at the track. The old man, his son Piero, Luca di Montezemolo, and Nikki. So Nikki tested the car. It was coming from March. And at the end of the test, uh, the old man asked him, what do you think about the car? Even Mauro Forgieri was there and he can testify it. And Nicky said, the car is shit. And uh, Piero Ferrari said, sorry, I cannot translate to my dad. And he said, no, you must translate. Otherwise, he doesn't understand and we can change. And so they did translate. And the old man said, okay, if the car is shit, now I give you one week of testing. If you don't improve it by five, six tenths, your contract will never come. And he started testing, the improvement came in a few days, and he was contracted. Formula Once Upon a Time. You mentioned his roles too, Morris. I mean, I found it odd as a journalist myself that he could be so heavily embedded with Mercedes, which it clearly was, you know, more than that 10% ownership. He was crucial with Toto and getting that machine to work so smoothly and strategically, particularly at race days. And and then he was commentator for German television or Austrian television, I can't remember. And I just find it extraordinary that he could stand there and being Nicky, probably being quite straight in what he'd say, not at all diplomatic. Did you get into that in your book at all? Did you ask a few people? I did, Norman, yes. It was RTL, the German station. And he worked for 20 years, actually, with uh, Florian Koenig, who's the main presenter. Professional, very professional guy, lovely guy. And we chatted for a long time, and he said I had the most wonderful relationship with this guy, Nicky Lauda, because uh, he said from right from the start, he said, Nicky came to me and he said, okay, he said, you are a presenter, I know about cars. He said, so let me talk about the cars, you do what you have to do, okay? Do we, are we understood? He said, yep, that's fine, that suits me fine. 
And they said that's the way it worked, in that Nicky would say exactly what was happening and explain it, even if it was quite critical of a driver or a team, even of Mercedes. And this was the point, I think, that you're, you're making. It worked both ways because there would be a briefing prior to the race on the Sunday morning at the track, and Nicky would be there, of course, with Mercedes and the drivers, the engineers, talking about the tactics for the race and so on. And they'd go outside, and there would be RTL waiting to do a broadcast to talk about a preview of the race. And Nicky would tell them what he was doing in the meeting. And they would be delighted. And Toto Wolf would come out and go, Nicky, you can't say these things. And he goes, why? Why not? Why not? And they had a real nightmare with him just saying what he thought. Because what he said is true. That's what we're going to do. And there was things like uh, in the race uh, when Florian and, and uh, Nicky were not on air, so the commentators were doing their work, they'd be sitting in the – Mercedes Motorhome watching the race on TV and Nicky would have the headset on listening to the team radio and he would say, Lewis is coming in, they're bringing him in early. And Florian would get on the radio and say, don't go to an ad break now because we know he's coming in, stop. He would just give him all this information and the team would go, no, you shouldn't have said that. But he said, why not? Because he's just so straight, so direct. Don't hide anything. It's not a secret. You know, it just gets, uh, so it was de- an absolute delight. Florian said it was very professional and said the other thing was, the first question he would always ask whenever you met at the racetrack, particularly on the last day, the first question he'd say was, what time are we finishing? And it wasn't because he wanted to do as minimum as possible and he, he wanted to just get away. He wanted to know exactly what time, because then he could book his pilot to be ready with a plane to go off back to Vienna and have a meeting maybe at half past 10 that night. That's all he wanted to know. If you'd said, we've got to work all evening, you'd said, fine, what time do we finish? Quarter past nine at night, fine, I'm away at half past nine. He just needed to know everything precisely. And he would give you all the time you needed, but you hadn't, you, you don't mess him about. If you'd said, we're going to be finished at 20 past seven in the evening, and it was half past seven, goodbye, I'm gone. <laughs> so, so long as you knew that, you were okay. When you researched the book, I, I'm fascinated by the relationship really between Toto and, and Nikki because they, they would stand there in the garage, you know, looking at the monitor, headphones on, and, and you know, and all the television stations delighted in seeing Toto Wolf banging, you know, his fist when something went wrong, et cetera, et cetera. But what kind of input did he have? Did, did you manage to get to the bottom of that during race day? Yes, I did. He had no input at all uh, in race day. He would simply observe. He would never say a thing because he respected the Mercedes team as th- as the professionals that they are. In other words, the six guys sitting in the pit wall, Toto Wolf standing in the garage, all playing out the race as they planned it, dealing with the various things, in contact with the guys in the bunker at the race headquarters back in Brackley, all the flow of information. He knew a lot of that, and he, by Nicky's own admission, a lot of the technology was a bit above him because he didn't quite understand a lot of it. He just knew the gut feeling about the racing. And even when sometimes they'd make a strategy call that he'd go, mm, I'm not sure about that. Why are they bringing him in now? He would never intrude. He would never interfere because that was just not his role. He would certainly discuss it afterwards. Um, you know, if, if there'd been an incident between the two drivers, say, on the track, and one of them had, had done something that was considered a bit iffy, uh, even when Nicky was interviewed afterwards, he would say, yes, that's something we have to look at. And then he would go and have a debrief with the team and with the drivers. And he would then have input then because he would be able to talk to the drivers from their point of view. And also he said that if the drivers had done something and the team weren't very happy, he would say to the team on behalf of the drivers, look, you have to see it from the way they're seeing it as a driver to give him a, cut him a little bit more slack on this issue. 
don't go down on too heavily because I understand why they did what they did. So he was a wonderful mediator for both sides, you know, understanding what the drivers thought, but also seeing it from the team manager, team management point of view and saying to the drivers, look, guys, I know you're feeling a bit hard done by by what they just said to you, but the reason they've said it is this, this and this. Trust me, it's correct. We've got to deal with this. We've got to put it right for the next race. So it's just this fantastic role. And when you think about it, there aren't many people in the world who can actually do that. And you know, Maurice, I mean, if you remember the crash between uh, Hamilton and Rosberg on lap one in Spain, uh, in Spain 2016, they crashed, they had to retire both, they lost the victory and so on. It was crucial at the end of the season because uh, because of that, maybe Rosberg was able to beat Lewis for the title. Immediately after the crash, if you remember, we saw everything on TV at that moment. We saw the drivers going upstairs to the hospital, to the technical hospitality Mercedes, then Toto, then Nikki. Okay. Then there was, of course, a meeting. They came out and the official word was, okay, we have faced it as a team discussion. Of course, we try now to explain all the responsibilities, blah, 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 blah. Very polite, very, very political and so on. Then Nikki was interviewed by everybody <laughs> and he said exactly like that. You know, I don't know. It was a team discussion. We just tried to exactly decide whose responsibility was, but uh, it's a, it's a shared situation and so on. Then I remember a journalist asked him, okay, Nikki, but uh, who is most the fault? And he said, Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> exactly like this yeah. and everybody was very upset I remember the communication manager for, for Mercedes I touched his head yeah, come on he said Lewis and in fact the next day all the words said uh, Nicky Lauda said it's Lewis' fault <laughs> it was but, but this brings me on to a point that I, I also am fascinated by how important do you think was the role of Nicky Lauda with Lewis okay we know he brought he brought him over Big, that's a big role already but Lewis, you know, has shown to be himself, like all top sports people and top performers, to be fragile in certain situations. Incredibly tough in some situations, but fragile in others. How important do you think, well, the both of you actually, you've been so close to it, has his role been with helping, sometimes literally holding Lewis's hand, I think, in some situations? It's very hard to say exactly, Norman. I didn't really get a sense of um, hand-holding as such. Uh, there was a, I, I had a conversation with Lewis it was a group conversation actually and the subject of Nikki came up and the feeling you got was just huge respect for Nikki so if Lewis had any doubts about anything he would run it past Nikki to see what he thought but if Nikki came to him about something that the team were worried about or that that Nikki felt that Lewis had done something in public maybe he did one or two little things which were a bit dodgy at times weren't they away away from the, yeah. the car um, he would just ask him, why did you do that? Only to, out of curiosity, not uh, because I want to punish you. It was, I'm curious to know why you did that. And then he would try and understand it from the driver's point of view because, of course, they were from different eras and things have changed hugely in that there are different pressures on the drivers today. And there's social media, which wasn't around in Nicky's day. And it, it creates its own problems, doesn't it? Yes. Which the driver, particularly Lewis very keen on using it um nicky wouldn't understand a lot of that so that lewis would probably have to explain to him a bit about that so i think it was a two-way street really I, I don't think i don't think lewis was the sort that needed his hand held i think 
he perhaps needed a little bit of guidance here and there. He was, in some ways, he's a touch naive, or has been, perhaps not so much now, but he was. And uh, Nicky would certainly put him right on, on that score because Nicky sees everything black and white. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, we keep going back to this during our conversation today. The way I would sum him up was if something happened in the paddock, and uh, you know how it is, Roberto, you're hearing these, something happens and you hear one side, you hear another side, then somebody says this and somebody says that. And then in the end, you're going, you're, you've got to write a story that night and you're going, God, I don't know which is right, which is wrong. What do I do? If you could get the hold of Nicky, it would be perfect because you go to him and you say, listen, Nicky, this, this, and this, what do you think? And he'd always start by saying, it's very simple. <laughs> and then he'd go, bang, 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 bang. Exactly. It's very simple. Of course. It's very simple. And they go, boom, boom, boom. And you think, of course. Why did I not think of that? It's common sense, of course, because you're getting your head filled with all this periphery stuff, which half the time is nonsense. Uh, and he would just cut right through it. So I imagine with Lewis, you know, something like that, there'd be all this talk and, and the journalists would be asking him questions and some, the tabloid journalists would be asking some pretty awful questions. And, you know, well, a driver could get to you, I'm sure. And Nicky, I'm sure, would say to him, forget it. Don't worry about it. It doesn't matter. Move on. That's where I think it would be very useful. But you know, when Nicky came to Ferrari, the, the fantastic thing, it was that uh, he started talking Italian quite quickly, I can say, because he was talking Italian as the Ferrari mechanics did. So using a lot of slang, you know, a lot of slang. His uh, number one sentence said in Italian, he said it to every TV interview and so on. It was uh, Crante Casino, which was meaning big mess. What's... Uh, What's going on, Nicky? Because I don't know, they had a retirement or whatever. And he said, Crante Casino. I mean, he had that possibility, that capability to really pack things in the quickest way, in the most clear way, every time. I remember after the Fuji, when everybody interviewed him and said, okay, you retired because you decided that it was better to retire in Fuji, but Ferrari pays you. So you made a big damage to Ferrari. And the answer, Ferrari pays me to drive, not to jump from the roof of my house. <laughs> and it was exactly like this. Every time it was so clear, his answers were so quick, so sharp, always so intelligent. Totally. I mean, it was a joy to interview, uh, a joy to talk to for that very reason, Roberto. And, and talking, Norman, about interviews, I talked to several journalists for the book about their reflections on Nikki. And one thing came out that we, a point we all shared, which is actually quite amusing because you tend to think, I thought it was just me. He had a habit of putting you on the spot because you know, he's so professional. He wanted to see you as a journalist or professional. And what he would do, in my case, and he did it for various others, let me just give you my example. It was Detroit, uh, the Detroit Grand Prix, the year of his comeback, 1982. And I wanted to arrange an interview with him later in the day and the weekend to just talk about things, about the comeback and all the rest of it. And Alan Henry, a dear colleague of mine, was a great friend of Nicky's. They'd been together during their Formula Two days. And, and Alan knew Nicky very well. So I said to Alan, would you introduce me to Nicky and then I'll make an appointment to come and see him later. And I said, sure, sure. So the morning practice had finished in Detroit. We're in the pit lane, right? It's all busy and noise and wheels coming off cars. And it was an open pits because the garage was somewhere down the road in Kobo Hall. And Alan introduced me to Nikki, and I said, um, Nikki, uh, I'd like to do an interview with you, um, and uh, maybe we want to talk about it. And he said, okay, let's do it now. Start. 
<laughs> fortunately, fortunately for me, Alan warned me this might happen. And I had my questions in my head and, my, and I had my tape recorder out and I was gone. But he was just doing it. And Michael Schmidt had exactly the same thing and other journalists, exactly the same thing. You want to see, all right, you're expecting me to be professional. I want to see if you're a professional. Okay, start. And then he would go and you put you on your metal right from the, the word go. But, but the answers were brilliant. You know, there'd be no prevarication. In the same way, when you ask for an interview, it would be, oh, I'm busy today. Can you come back tomorrow? Uh, come and see me at half past three. Oh, I don't know. And none of this. It would be, yep. Do it, okay? And the question, yep, answer, 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 bang. Perfect. Roberto, I'm sure you find the same just for interviews. No, nobody better. I remember so many times phoning him, Maurice, phoning him in Austria or on his mobile, and he was asking me, say, hello, I'm Taunik, it's me, sorry, I wanted to do if, we can, if you can talk a second and so on. I'm very busy now, please call me in three minutes. I said three <laughs> minutes, not five, three minutes. And if you didn't call in three minutes, but five, He yeah. said, he answered, you're late. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it, yeah. <laughs> That's fantastic. What comes out so much is that, I suppose it's the era too, he was his own man and unfettered by, um, you know, of course he was, he, he had sponsorship, his cap was worth a lot of money and he was very keen on that side of things, naturally, like all the drivers. But he did seem to be above it all, didn't he? He, he just seemed to plow his own furrow. He cared, of course he cared, but at the same time he didn't care. It's kind of strange, really. Correct, Norman. It was a very intriguing mix. And uh, the best light shone on that was by his son, Lucas. I had a long chat with Lucas on the phone about his dad. And uh, we talked about their childhood, Lucas and his brother Matthias, their childhood in Ibiza. And he said the thing that struck us was that dad, Nicky, kept saying to us, You should never, ever forget who you are. You should never forget where you stand. Because Lucas said we would be out having breakfast or something and people would come up and ask for an autograph or a photograph. And Nicky would always oblige them, always, no matter where he was. And he kept impressing that on the kids to say, never forget, it's so important. Don't think you're more important than they are because you're not. Yes, of course, you're a star. You've done a lot, which is why he could wear the cap because he knew you'd be recognized by it and he knew people would pay him money to wear the cap in photographs, but he did it because he wanted to do it. And he, he, he really drummed this into the two boys to say it is so important that never forget your public. So there was no airs or graces. And you, as you say, he was just riding along and he would take it all in his stride. So the, he, he, they said when he went back to, Lucas said when they went back to Vienna, I mean, he'd be walking down the street, he'd be stopped all the time. He wouldn't be fussed about it. He wouldn't get cross about it. Because uh, after a while, you know, it could, could be irritating you could understand that but he never let it bother him he just got on with it and of course then going right to the end the funeral that they had for him in, in vienna in the cathedral in st Stephen's cathedral there were people stood outside in the rain because they couldn't all get in because the cathedral was full in the rain for four or five hours and lucas said they were just bowled over by the response the love and people have come from miles from, from abroad in to be able to be there on that day just to stand in the rain to pay tribute. And I think that is a reflection of how he came across to everybody is he just you know, was a man of the people. Yet for somebody who was such a superstar in their minds, to him, he was just a professional. He did a job, be it driving a racing car, running an airline, dealing with a monstrous crash, whatever. He just dealt with it in this such a pragmatic way and such a lovely way. 
Finally, Morris, your lasting thoughts about Lauda. After all the words you've written and the interviews you've done, what is the that sentence, that, that thought that comes to your mind? Uh, lucky, how lucky I was to be around in that period, to see him do his first international race at, at Mallory Park. I was a, a fan in March 1971. I uh, trekked all the way up to Mallory Park in March, a freezing cold day, and he was driving a March there was nobody around him. Everybody was around Ronnie Peterson's car, the works car, and I took a picture of him. Uh, I don't know why. I don't know, why, I don't know what made me do this. But this guy, I never, I'd, I'd heard the name and that's it. And this buck-toothed young kid in this car took a picture and just followed him. And then when I got into journalism and got writing and I got to know him, and then I showed him this picture oh, about five or six years ago. I found it in my, arc, in my album and I got it printed off and gave it to him. And we had a long chat about it. And so to have been from that, followed him all the way through, been to majority of his races, seen it all, lived through that era, seen, gone through a wonderful era. Because, you know, the, I have to say we were very lucky, and Roberto, I'm sure, will agree, to go through the era we did of racing, which was fantastic. But to see this guy do what he did and to witness it was just a very special thing. And then to be able to talk to him at length in his retirement later on was just, yeah, a wonderful thing. I'm just lucky. Morris, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts with us. Uh, once more, you've written a book. Tell us again. It's simply called Nicky Lada, The Biography, Norman. Thank you very Thank much, you. Morris. My pleasure, Norman. Thank you so much. Thank you, Roberto. Well, Nicky Lauda, a true legend. Thanks for listening. And please like and subscribe to this podcast. Roberto and I will be here with another one soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 